1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show.
2: Welcome to Behind the Market. here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me on the phone is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. Please note that Jeremy Schwartz is a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy not tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Western Tree or any of its affiliates. Hey, Jeremy, what's new?
1: Well, I'm uh, out on UCLA's campus. We're doing a, a behavioral finance program here, so it's been a, a great, interesting few days here at UCLA. Um, it's an interesting day in the markets. We've got the jobs report, and we've got a great guest, uh, Danielle, from former Fed uh, Economist, and she does a lot of research ongoing. It's one of my favorite research pieces I read every, every morning. Uh, so we're looking forward to hearing her view live on what's been happening in the economy. Some of the things that she's watching, should be a unique take. Um, it was a one-month big surprise on the downside. So only twenty thousand jobs. The expectations were much higher. Now the people, sort of the economists, are saying, "Is this just the government shutdown?" Sort the message coming out of the White House is that it's a one-off, temporary. You know, ignore it because of the the government shutdown. Ah, uh, sort of like people were ignoring the retail sales aberrational number, you know, at the end of last year. Um, it would be interesting to see how you know, if it is just this one-time aberration or if it's really the start of a more serious, sort of disappointing economic uh, type report.
2: Yeah, so let's welcome our first guest now, Danielle. Martina Bruce is a CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence, a new research and analytics firm. She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle is a global th- thought leader sought after for her insights on monetary policy, both in the US and abroad. Uh, welcome back to the show, Danielle. Tell us a little bit.
0: Hi,
2: thank you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Quill Intelligence, and I'm sure Jeremy would love to hear about your thoughts. Well, Quill Intelligence uh, is a firm that was founded after I left the Federal Reserve, Uh,
0: and really, it is is a continuation of the work that I did for President Fisher uh, when I was there for almost a decade. And really, what I try and do is what I tried to do for him all those years with writing markets briefings, and that is to look and see where the economy is going as opposed to what most trained economists do, which is tell you where it's been in a seasonally adjusted fashion, which doesn't really help investors figure out how to position their portfolios. So we have a weekly institutional offering called the Weekly Quill, and we have a daily offering called the Daily Feather. And it, it has it has gained a cult following that I'm very proud of.
1: I'm I uh, one of your new followers, Danielle. So I think it's uh, and I got to meet you in in Maine with the the Cam talk crew a few years ago, and it's been it's been fun to start reading all of your your pieces. Um, you know, it's it's um, I would say out. You can tell me if I'm I'm broadly characterizing this right. I mean, I'd say you're when you when you're the last few weeks. I'd say in particular it's been a little bit more cautionary type note that you're getting a little bit more worried about just the overall state of the economy. Would that is that a the accurate characterization and today's oh. k- kind of jobs report in that in that view?
0: Um it is but today's jobs report really doesn't sway my thinking very much because it's it's in, incredibly difficult to read through the noise of today's report, uh, I like to follow much more forward-looking indicators uh, when it comes to the job market. And if there was one thing that we saw today, it was pronounced weakness in manufacturing. And that was validated by the Challenger Gray and Christmas layoff data that we follow very closely that was released yesterday morning that showed that, the, in, that, that there's increasing signs of distress spreading throughout the industrials complex. So, this is kind of a new wrinkle, if you will, because there had been a lot of panic buying ahead of the potential implementation of higher tariffs in China. So, that's what we're looking at. You know, last, last year, for example, also we had Lowe's and Home Depot to, get, to give but two examples. We had Lowe's and Home Depot uh, say that they were going to hire 133,000 people last February. We didn't see any of that. Uh, in the hiring data that was released, and I think that that is also reflective of the true slowing we're seeing in residential real estate. So there are many different pockets of weakness that are emerging. That it, it's becoming increasingly difficult to to ignore.
1: And, and so, when you think about just where we are in that economic cycle, I mean, the the Fed had been hiking rates. We've we've you could say the Fed creates all the recessions. They hike too far. When if, as as you think through the outlook for the Fed this year. And you know Powell certainly walked back the expectations for what they were going to do this year. How do you see them sort of anticipating how the Fed would react to all this data? Like, how do you see their policy shaping up this year?
0: Well, I think Fed policy right now is is as rattled as it's ever been uh, because Jay Powell is somebody who understands the financial markets. So I think that there's a certain irony that we are. This is our first non PhD in economics to run the Fed since Paul Volcker left in 1987, and I think that the reasoning behind the Powell pivot, if you will, was that he saw the credit markets go into a deep freeze in uh, in November and December, and that really has to have rattled him, given the magnitude of increase that we've seen in the credit markets. And the potential for spillover effects into the real economy.
1: And you know, the other news this week we had. You know, I, I, I remember a few weeks ago you had a piece on the dollar, and it ties into sort of not just U.S. monetary policy but global monetary policy. So we had news from this week out of the ECB. Any sense of the global monetary dynamics and the news out of the ECB this week too?
0: Well, you know, I think that that uh, sadly enough. Mario Draghi is going to—he's he, going to trigger the rewriting of economic textbooks because this gentleman who leaves office on Halloween 2019 will have come through an entire eight years in office without even being able to begin to attempt to take uh, t- to normalize monetary policy. Uh, to see them back off the way that they did was was really alarming. But it didn't surprise us at Quill Intelligence because we had two, uh, two, two of our three biggest predictions for 2019 were that Germany was going to go into a recession dragged down by the global auto industry and that we were going to see the dollar strengthen, uh, be, not because necessarily the U.S. economy was going to be strong as a standalone, but because you would see weakening sufficiently in other areas of the world that made it to where the dollar was a safe haven um, uh, uh, was was the the beneficiary of safe haven flows.
1: Yeah, now you've also, so I mean, what the, in terms of the experiment of monetary policy, you know, they've got negative rates. I think, you know, I think the the banks didn't react well to, we're staying low for longer, not going to get out of negative rates. But then you had, you know, the U.S. people are starting to bring in the concept of hey, in, in the next downturn, we may consider going to negative rates as well. I mean, is that something that we're going to look at Europe and Japan and say it's something that, quote-unquote, worked and we should be doing that here?
0: Well, you know, it, uh, people need to understand the, the infrastructure of the Federal Reserve. Uh, there is probably a fallacy in most people thinking that the vice chair of the, Federal Open, uh, of the Federal Reserve Board is the second in command at the Fed. That is not true. The, the vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee is always the New York Fed president. Um, that is John Williams at the moment. It was Bill Dudley before. It was Timothy Geithner before that. And if, if if Jerome Powell comes down with the stomach flu, then it is it is John Williams who runs the FOMC. I give you that background because it's Williams who made the speech um, over the past uh, several days ago in, in a Q and A session. He said that under appropriate circumstances, that negative interest rates could be considered. So I I promise you, I I think we'll be watching the same thing on Sunday night. I think we both know that we'll be watching Scott Pelley interview uh, Powell and Bernanke and Yellen on 60 Minutes. Uh, And I'm sure that that will be one of the questions. I, I would hope it would be one of the questions that would be asked directly of Jay Powell is whether or not, in times of economic distress, he would consider and advocate for negative interest rates. You know, we saw a five percent two day decline in the European banking stock index, which I hope screams loud and clear, you know, the, the, the the fact that there is no efficacy to negative interest rates, they failed miserably. And I can only hope that they don't visit our shores.
1: How do they get out of that? You know, when they you know, they're they're in that policy to admit failure is like one of the hardest things for them to do. I mean, do, do you think they, they does Europe, do the, they certainly not recognize that the European Central Bank that they think it's a it's a failed policy. Is that, would you say that's accurate?
0: Oh, I, I think it is unequivocally a, a failed policy. Most of the headlines you're seeing today and the parallels being drawn suggest that Europe is being, you know, the Japanification of Europe uh, and, and the whole idea of a debt trap and being in a situation in which you cannot normalize interest rates, you cannot bring them out of negative territory, a year ago at this time, markets were beginning to price in uh, one interest rate increase before Draghi left office in the early fall. Uh, that would have taken from 0.4 to negative 0.2 percent. Uh, but right now, markets have begun to price in the opposite. And that would be easing out of the European Central Bank, which I think is, is just a screaming refutation of how very failed the policy has been and uh, uh, with all due deference I'm sure he's a brilliant man I've never met him personally but Mario Draghi has egg all over his face
1: interesting um, so Europe is one of the big stories and 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 you mentioned the the recession in Germany and you'd say all of Germany in some ways uh, and you say this for for some of Europe that that they're being dragged down by the slowdown in China in some ways, and that all the global manufacturing PMIs are sort of correlated to that. I know you're watching Japan and Korea and Germany sort of be tied to some of the similar things. Do you look at some of the stimulus measures being announced out of China recently as maybe the global PMIs, which have been so negative, start to turn around that they have a bottoming process? Like, how do you think about what's the, the catalyst to get those to turn around?
0: Well, I think that we certainly could see some stabilization in the months to come in South Korea in Japan um, in, in Germany uh, but it, it, it is a remains to be seen situation namely because if you speak to people who are on the ground in China if you speak to experts on China they will tell you that the trade war is what dragged the Chinese economy down narrative is false that the Chinese economy was slowing well before Trump tweeted out his first threat so if that is the case then we will see a potential stabilization because China injected an unprecedented in history, which is saying something for China in stimulus, 5% of gross domestic product into its economy in the month of January, which is why we've seen this new rush of liquidity into risky assets worldwide. Even as, the, even as the European Central Bank was pulling back from its own quantitative easing program, you had China just going crazy Five percent of GDP. I don't even think I can wrap my head around what a big number that was, but that was how nervous policymakers had become because it was looking like China was slipping into recession.
2: Hey, you're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, thank you, Daniel, on uh, Business Radio, Siri XM One Thirty Two. I'm your host, Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha and Wisdom Tree. We're talking with Daniel De Martinez Booth. The CEO and director of intelligence, a research and analytics firm. Hey, Danielle, I um, you mentioned that uh, you know Powell is a little bit different from uh, Yellen in the sense that you know he 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 came from a different background so Yellen is um is famous for looking at some of the unemployment uh variables that you know she pays special attention are there some special variables particularly you mentioned the credit market that from your point of view that um the president power pays, pays attention to
0: Um, So I should be careful to point out that if you read the 2012 and 2013 transcripts, you see that Jay Powell was a very, very quick study when it came to understanding econometrics and embracing the art of economics. So he has a firm grasp of everything that his predecessors had. He might not be as well studied as Janet Yellen, who is a trained labor economist. Uh, But in addition to that, I think that he is following things like uh, what Jeremy Stein followed. Jeremy Stein came in in June 2012 right along with Powell. They were rookies together. Um, and I think that, that Jay Powell is following credit spreads. I think Jay Powell knows that the junk bond market went into a deep freeze and that issuance completely halted. So, uh, And he understands spillover effects and the fact that, that CEO and CFO confidence took a nosedive alongside the, the decline in the stock market and because he, he also founded the industrials group when he was at the Carlisle, a private equity firm. So he also speaks to hundreds of CEOs worldwide and understands very well the threat posed by really a, a, a turn after 15 years in the global automobile sector and what that portends for the world economy, uh, but also what it speaks to in terms of how it might play out in the bond market, in the credit market, which, as we know, has grown exponentially. The, the, the just, just the U.S. corporate bond market has doubled uh, since we uh, came out of crisis.
2: Thank you. So, do you think that uh, the bond market, but, I mean the credit market, uh, particularly, will be become a uh, you know a bigger focus uh, going forward? And also, just touch on a little bit about the negative interest rates that you commented. Um, sometimes uh, there's you know this saying that negative interest is almost uh, the Fed is doing the work where the executive um, branch should be doing. Um, instead of, you know, for the Fed to go for the negative interest rate? Uh, and just got some of your comments that will be useful. Thank you. Well,
0: so I think when it comes to uh, to looking at the debt markets, kind of the shot across the bow last year was when General Electric's bonds uh, took a nosedive. Investors really weren't that concerned, if you will, that General Electric's stock was melting. But boy, when its bonds got hit, people sat up and paid attention, and they started looking to other companies like AT&T that's got over $180 billion of debt on its balance sheet. And I think the reason that we should focus as much as we do on the credit markets is because if there is an increased trend towards companies looking to clean up their balance sheets, then that speaks to liquidity that will not be used to fund share buyback, which really was the only reason that in 2018 at least throughout most of the year until the meltdown in, in the fourth quarter. But throughout most of 2018 and in this year's first quarter, it has been share buybacks at record levels that have, that have really kept up and propped up the stock market. If companies turn their focus to cleaning up their balance sheets, they won't have that, the, the, the stock market won't have that source of liquidity to prop it up. And again, in the absence of quantitative easing. So, you know, as far as negative interest rates go and the Fed doing the work of the private sector, I, um, I certainly am sympathetic and our U.S. issuers, Caterpillar, many companies um, swarmed into the European corporate bond market to issue bonds because, the inter- because interest rates were even lower on a relative basis in Europe. So I certainly sympathize with that, but, uh, but again, I... I, I, I I'm concerned that the Fed's dual mandate that was imposed in 1977 when the employment mandate was added to the Federal Reserve, it it concerns me that in order to keep employment maximized, that they constantly, over and over again in each cycle, have kept interest rates lower than they need to be for longer to try and fulfill that secondary mandate.
1: So Danielle, um, I mean, I, I'm going back to a few of your notes you wrote uh, in February, and, and maybe sort of talk to all of the forward-looking indicators you're talking about, not just these backward-looking ones that we get, you know, on, on jobs reports t- like today. And and one of them, you know, you had an interesting title: "How to Doomsday Prep for the Decline in Non-Parm Ferals." Uh, and sort of not talk about it. this may maybe a discussion not suitable for the bullishly biased audiences. Um, what is your when you think about those doomsday prepping? I mean, what that's a being very cautious what's what are the signs there from that from that note that you think people have to be very cautious about
0: well i'm trying to picture that note in my mind believe it or not writing on a daily basis you <laughs> forget the details that being said when it comes to the job market we follow very closely people who are leaving their jobs voluntarily and that is a sign of a maximum confidence in the ability to walk out the door, quit the job that you've been waiting to quit for years, because you have confidence that you can get another job right away. So we follow that very closely. That bottomed in August. Um, we follow people working part-time for economic reasons. Uh, you know, that also bottomed last August. We try and look to the extent that we can at the most forward-looking indicators. We even have something that we call the holy grail of economic indicators, and that is when households surveyed by the University of Michigan, uh, when when, oh, when 30% or more of household surveys worry that there is going to be increasing unemployment in the next 12 months. Once you cross that 30% line. That becomes our holy grail of worrisome economic indicators, because it's one thing to talk amongst your peers on Wall Street about what the economic data are are, are communicating. It's a whole different thing when Main Street figures it out and starts to be fearful of layoffs.
1: Yeah. is there so that that consumer the, the the trending consumer sentiment there is one of the most important parts um, any other of these forward looking economic indicators that you're very closely following that gives you that more mixed picture or sort of more pessimistic picture for the economy
0: well you know we also follow very closely the diffusion indices and it, one of the one of the warts if you will on today's jobs report was decreasing. Number of industries that were responsible for hiring. So once you start to see that occur, that means that what economic strength is being generated throughout the economy is 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 getting uh, is coming from a smaller and smaller pool of industries. Every single week, we follow extremely closely on an individual state level initial jobless claims, and we have a DEFCON three, two, and one rating for claims. And we've been at DEFCON, too, for most of February now because we've had over 50% of the states being surveyed with rising year-over-year year initial jobless claims. And they're increasingly seen in some of the larger uh, states that employ the most people. So that is worrisome. And if you also look inside the Challenger Gray and Christmas data, the layoff data, again, it's industrials. And guess what? the weakness that we're seeing pop up in individual states are among those that are exposed to the cyclical industries that tend to turn first they lead the economy into recession they lead the economy out of recession and it is those cyclical industries travel leisure and hospitality trucking transportation manufacturing automobiles these are the industries that are that are really exhibiting signs of weakness right now in addition to what we're seeing in temporary employment coming off of its highs as well. That's something we'll be writing about next week.
1: Now, w- one of the things in the, today's report that was, you know, you could say a little bit more of a, a bright spot was just wage growth was a bit higher than expected. And one of the things people have been disappointed about is that you've had this dramatic drop in unemployment, yet no real wage pressures and um, in, in terms of driving other inflation pressures. Any you know, is, is, Are we getting to that point where there's less slack in the market that maybe we do get more signs of wage growth, or is, is, what, what's your thoughts there?
0: Well, you know, Jeremy, at the risk of somebody throwing a tomato at their radio right now, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to say that it, it, when you have management start to lay off workers, by definition, it is a mathematical truism that your wage growth is going to be higher because managers don't fire themselves which means that the, 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 the individuals who populate the labor force, by definition, for a while, are making more on average. So this, again, this is a late cycle signal, and there is one indicator that is more lagging than any of the indicators on the labor market, and that is wage inflation. It is the last thing to pick up. And it is the last thing to decline.
1: Any? Are there any? Any? If you said right, so on the on this negative side, there's a number of these things you're following. Any positive uh, indicators? You say, hey, uh, the risk to my more negative outlook is these positive things that are turning brighter. Anything on, on that
0: side? Well, I will say this much: um, the twenty thousand dollars. The, the, the twenty thousand headline figure uh, was. Now I'm going to sound like I'm, I used to work at the Federal Reserve. Um, there was gigantic amounts of seasonality in the number. Um, I, I hate to even use the word weather, uh, but it was an unusually uh, cold February. So it even especially during the survey week at which it was taken. So 20,000 is probably not the reality of the job market. Neither is 312,000. The truth is probably somewhere in between but again at this moment and especially given what we're starting to see from automobile manufacturers we had 13 dealerships close in 2018 that was the first time that we would seen dealer the dealership footprint start to contract from what we're seeing uh, there is not much to, to give you hope we might see stabilization um, but I think that the message that we're starting to see broadcast from uh, the stock market, which tries to be a forward-looking mechanism, is that the the weight of economic evidence is is going in the wrong direction.
2: Uh, Daniel, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the program today. Can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you know your company and get your weekly notes?
0: Of course, uh, it's very easy. Just go to QuillIntelligence dot com, uh, all one word, uh, and and hop on. Check out the Daily Feather. Uh, it is, in my not humble opinion, it, it is the quickest and best four and a half minute read for your morning. And and just follow me on Twitter as well at Demartino Booth. That is never ever boring.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much and look forward to meeting you soon. We need to take a short break, but don't go anywhere. In the next half an hour, Jeremy and I will be talking to David Keller of Sierra Alpha Research. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you are listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. Our show airs live every Friday 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. We're talking to David Keller, President and Chief Strategist at Sierra Alpha Research. Welcome to the show, Dave. And uh, please tell us a little bit about your firm and yourself as well, as you have a very interesting background.
3: Yeah, thanks so much. And, and guys, it's it's such a pleasure to to join you today. I, I appreciate the invitation. Um, you know, my, my firm's called Sierra Alpha Research, and I launched the firm just about a year and a half ago, and uh, I basically apply the lessons of behavioral finance and Data visualization and technical analysis to help institutional investors and financial advisors uh, manage risk. So, prior to launching my own firm, I was at Fidelity Investments up in Boston for about nine years, where I was a director of research and worked with all the uh, institutional portfolio managers there. And uh, and now just uh, you know using using what I've learned there to to work with smaller money managers and uh, and financial advisors, RIAs, and others, um, really to think about. Um, the markets uh, and, and understanding, having an awareness of what's happening around them. Because I find a lot of times as investors, we sort of put the blinders on and, and focus on certain things and, and miss opportunities that are out there. So, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's been uh, so far a, a great start to the business. I'm, I've, been, I've enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. Now, uh, we can go into detail later, uh, all the technicals, but you have a very uh, interesting background personally as a pilot. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your experience there and how do you compare, you know, you use those into, you know, influence your view on finance and uh, and all the your day-to-day work.
3: Sure. So the logo of my firm, my firm's actually named Sierra Alpha Research, and the logo of my firm has a little airplane flying above the the name of the firm, and, and, and the name actually, Sierra Alpha, comes from uh, aviation. So, as a pilot, you're, you're taught situational awareness, and that's the abbreviation of Sierra Alpha. Um, and what that is, is basically when you're flying an airplane, the worst thing you can do is forget to pay attention to your surroundings. And so, you're taught to always be scanning the horizon, always looking at your instruments with a consistent routine – um, because if you don 't that 's when you can do things like fly into a mountain or the ground or another airplane or something that 's going to end your flight you know prematurely, and so what you 're taught is basically to have this uh, situational awareness where am I and what 's around me and, and and just understanding you know potential issues that are going to come up and I find as it, as investors what I, when I, when I work with advisors work with institutional investors um, that 's what we sort of talk about you know and, and an example is uh, in 2014, the equity markets in the U.S. doing very well. It's the middle of this cyclical bull market. What a lot of people don't remember about that year is that utilities were actually the number one sector. So in a in a year when you would expect technology or cyclicals or something sort of the traditional leadership would have led, it was utilities. Now, where my sort of toolkit comes from is basically as a, as a pilot, that idea of situational awareness is looking around you outside the cockpit, having an awareness of... Of your surroundings and as investors um, I teach them to you know look at your surroundings as well so make sure that you have a good thirty thousand foot view of everything you know what are all the different levers you can pull and make sure that you don't miss opportunities that are out there and then you wouldn't miss something like utilities emerging as leadership you'd get in earlier in the uh, in the move and 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 personally what's funny is that um, a lot of the, the, my research, I, you know, my weekly report is called the weekly flight plan, and I have a lot of aviation terms that I throw in. And that comes from the fact that when I was learning to fly right from the beginning, my flight instructor actually would trade stocks um, you know, in his personal account when he wasn't up in an airplane. And so we would always talk about the comparisons of flying crashes and stalls and glide paths. And those words and that lingo comes up often in investing because there's so many good parallels to it.
2: Thank you. So this is interesting. What kind of a technical analysis do you specifically, you know, applied on on this twenty fourteen situation?
3: Sure. So you know, in in my opinion, you know, there's different ways to try to understand the markets, and for me, I I tend to follow more of a trend following uh, discipline, and that. That comes, I think, from the timeframes that I'm trying to operate on. So most institutional money managers are sort of looking in that three, six, 12-month time frame, probably more on the longer end of that. So understanding, you know, where you should be based on the next six to 12 months ends up being one of the most important questions to ask. And if you look at the data, especially equity, equity data in the U.S. going back, you know, multiple cycles, um, in general, if you're operating on that time frame, markets tend to persist or trends tend to persist. Meaning um, you know, 're better off buying strength overall and, and overall selling weakness, so buying what 's been working and selling what 's not been working in the short term if, you're, if your time frame is more a couple days to a couple weeks, you actually should be doing the opposite based on the data. You know in general, markets tend to mean revert, meaning you 're better off buying weakness and, and selling strength. Now, if you combine those two there 's a reason by why most quantitative models that an institution would use has what 's called a momentum factor, and the momentum factor is simply the combination of those two. Um, those two time frames you know, in, in general, generally speaking. So, um, you know, you tend to want to buy stocks that have been strong for the last 12 months, for example, but weak in the last one month, or they call it the 12 minus one uh, momentum factor. And that's what it's doing. It's saying a longer, stronger long-term trend, but a weaker short-term trend. So for me, my technical toolkit is all designed to try to understand the relationship between those two timeframes. So the core of it are a series of trend-following models trying to understand you know, the longer term trends, make sure you're on the right of what's working and, and, and not on, on, in things that are not working. And that's where utilities emerged as leadership. They started to rotate to more of the strength side. They were performing well when other sectors were starting to correct. And and so that's what told me to sort of uh, you know layer into those things. But then also I think what technical analysis can do is help you understand more of the tactical, more of that short-term time frame. And so there are a lot of more mean-reversion tools. We would call them momentum indicators. And it's things that you know some some may, listeners may have heard of, things like RSI or something like that, the relative strength index, which just tells you. Overall, have we moved too high too quickly or too low too quickly based on how a stock or how an asset normally trades? And so in general, my my technical toolkit is trying to understand that long-term trend, 6 to 12 months, but also the short-term tactical situation. And ideally, buy in on the weaker points of a stronger long-term trend is how I'd summarize it.
2: Um so thank you. This is very interesting. But I do want to follow up a little bit. Uh in terms mm-hmm. of the for your technical analysis, your input, are those mainly price data or are you looking at some other quantity or other variables?
3: Sure. No, good question. So the way that I've always thought of it is that technical analysis, you know, a study of price is one input that a, a holistic investor, a, a complete investor should be using. So you know my research is is primarily on technical and behavioral research but i i would rarely i, w- I would hope that my my customers my clients um, don't just use it on its own because i don't i think that's an incomplete toolkit the same reason I would say that um, you know, fundamentally, if you're, if you're just looking at companies and sectors and markets from a fundamental perspective, I think you're missing that there's information in price. And, and the way that I would combine those two is if you look at different uh, factors over time, there's a momentum factor that has been persistent. There's also a value factor that traditionally has has added value. So in general, buying things that you were know, undervalued relative to some sort of intrinsic value, and those have tended to work. So my toolkit is is based mostly on price. There are some additional things that you would bring in, and it's things like uh, sentiment, investor sentiment. So survey data, like institutional investors or individual investors, a lot of times we'll be able to capture, are they bullish or bearish? And finding rotations in that sentiment could be interesting. But a lot of times we actually draw sentiment from the price data itself. So, you know, trying to get, uh, uh, you know, understand sort of second level behind a price movement. Is it institutions or more retail investors doing the buying or selling, what sort of volume characteristics, what sort of breadth data, you know, how big is a move or how narrow is a move. Um, but, but in general, it tends to be more, uh, definitely more price oriented. The idea is that you're focused on price and that price has information.
1: Hi, David. It's, uh, it's Jeremy Schwartz here. It's, uh, it's interesting you focus a lot on behavioral finance. Uh, I'm actually at the UCLA Anderson School for a behavioral finance uh, invest, uh, executive Education Program this week, so it's interesting timing on the interest of, of your what you're doing and what and what, we're, what we're doing here this week at UCLA. Uh, talk a little bit about the trends in you know so this technical analysis interpretation in behavioral finance. What is sort of causing the technical analysis to work? What kind of view is it tied to behavioral finance? Is it tied to other market theory of, of why you think it works and will continue to work going forward?
3: So first off, Jeremy, that sounds like a fantastic program. I I, want to hear more about that at some point. Maybe we could talk talk later, but um, but that sounds great. I I found that, um, you know, it's interesting, this whole idea of behavioral finance, of um, investor irrationality and, and irrational behavior and decision-making is relatively recent. I mean, a lot of the foundational work, you know, Kahneman, Tversky and others um, has happened, you know, many decades ago, but has but is, but is completely uh, evolved and, and really blossomed in the last, you know, 10, 20 years for sure. And the fact that we're talking about behavioral finance and in, in really the mainstream shows you how far we've come from efficient markets theory and efficient markets hypothesis. What's interesting um, from my perspective, I, I found behavioral finance. This idea of, you know, irrational behavior and fear and greed driving decisions and and how we're hardwired to in many ways make poor investment decisions. That is really the foundation of why charts should work in the first place, right? Because. What, what, I, what I always explain to people is that charts are a way to quantify investor behavior, a way to understand decision making you know, visually um, in, instead of just trying to infer it from you know, talking to, to friends or, or hearing what people are thinking. Um, technical analysis actually predates most other forms of analysis, um, you know, so, so a lot of the technical toolkit that we use comes from Charles Dow, which was the early 1900s, before you know, things like the Fed and, and others, and, and, and forcing companies to report fundamental data consistently before all of that happened. So the only tool that an individual would have was looking at charts, was looking at uh, some sort of price data to, to make assumptions. Um, but that our toolkit has evolved much like much like others, and so um, I think that relationship is is very very rich. I work with my advisor clients to understand their behavioral biases in their routine, so I find a lot of ways, you know, how they're looking at data and how they're. Making their asset allocation decisions, security selection, a lot of times there are behavioral biases, confirmation bias, endowment effect, and others that you know that that basically cause you to make you know um, uh, less than ideal decisions about how you 're going to be positioned. Technical analysis is just a practical toolkit to try to capture those biases and make sure that you're minimizing the impact of those biases, not just on on the buy side, but I would say even probably more valuable on the sell side on on risk management. So understanding when your thesis is not working anymore and having the courage and the conviction to get out of a losing position was probably the best best contribution of it.
1: And and how much do you think this kind of work can be completely Quantified like that, you have a set of daily indicators. Your system spit it out to you every morning. You know exactly what to do. Versus, you know, sort of the pure quant, pure science versus how much art is there when you're doing this. That you have a, you know, it's a mosaic of indicators. You're following five different things on any given chart, and you have to sort yes. of look at it and then tell the story from from the data. How much, how much is pure systematized?
3: It's such a it's such a really good question. And what's funny is, as I mentioned, I mean the, the technical toolkit has evolved, and a lot of the techniques that I use now were developed really in the 1960s, even 1970s. So, you know, early work on relative strength, which really turned into, um, you know, relative momentum. You know, sort of came in the 60s and then the 70s. There was a lot of price analytics, um, and, and so forth. I found that there's a there's a spectrum, right? And, and so there are more quantitative ways to Um, approach what I'm doing. um, And there are more qualitative ways to do it. Um, I've found some investors, you know, gravitate naturally more toward the quantitative uh, process, right? So trying to systematize some of the tools that we use. And that's like a momentum factor is really a simplistic way of capturing price movements over time. and just trying to understand what's working and what isn't. Um, You know, common ways that people, um, you know, and again, if you're not at a big institution, places you would see this, if you're familiar with like the William O'Neill methodology, writes Investors Business Daily, and, and other things, uh, and a number of really good books on investing. Um, you know, he has a uh, composite scores and rankings, percentile rankings based on some technical. Also, he has other rankings that, that combine fundamental inputs as well. Uh, but sort of quantifies, you know, what's working and what isn't purely from a price-based, uh, you know, supply and demand perspective. But then, in 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 my uh, sort of peer group of analysts, there's also the completely other side that you know don't tend to quantify as much, and it's more of a subjective analysis you know it 's taking a chart and going through a mental or a, 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 an explicit checklist here 's all the different inputs that i 'm looking at now here 's the weight of the evidence here 's the mosaic overall now i 'm bullish on EM or China or gold or whatever it is based on the weight of the evidence of these inputs and the answer to your question for me is i 'm sort of in the middle so I found that you know I, I think that um, you're shortchanging yourself if you try to over quantify um, any of these things because a model is only as good as the assumptions of the model, so you know a, a, a percentile ranking of stocks is going to work pretty well in in an average environment, but those three four, five standard deviation moves all of a sudden will explode a really good working model a lot of times on the other hand if you 're just looking at things subjectively and not taking advantage of the computing power that you have available i think you 're shortchanging yourself as well, and a lot of times it just it it becomes reflected in missed opportunities. So something's moving, but you're not using alerts and using uh, systems routines to actually surface the outliers or surface the opportunities. So for me, I run, you know, macro models and some stock picking models, but instead of using those as an output of my process, I use those as an input of my process. So the models are what show me what, is meaningful, what's interesting, what I may want to pay attention to. But then I dig deeper into those with sort of a subjective overlay. And then I, you know, use that to sort of filter through and identify what I find is most actionable. And in my opinion, I think that's the investor of the future, the analyst of the future, I think that's, those, that, that's the approach that's going to emerge as the most effective, which is using computers for what, you know, computing power for what it is good for, which is, you know, crunching data, um, you know, analyzing trends and, and quantifying things and screens. So using humans for what we're good for, which is understanding relationships, understanding, you know, when something is realistic or not, and, and, and being able to make assumptions and, and combine those two together. So that's what I try to do uh, with my process now.
2: Hey, Dave. This is really interesting. Uh, so this is Lee Chen Ren. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets. Um, and we're talking to David Keller, President and Chief Strategist at Zero Alpha Research. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, from your point of view, what's the three most common behavioral biases?
3: Absolutely. And, and it's funny, I, As as a specialist in behavioral finance, I've always hesitated to um, you know, to make my my practice too negative, because the problem with behavioral biases, when you think about them, is there's so many things that it feels like humans are, are designed to just do poorly. And so I don't, I don't like to beat up on, you know, clients or, or, or uh, you know, investors thinking, you know, you're just, you're just hardwired to do poorly at this. So I try to focus on what humans, you know, are actually good at, what what investors can do well. But having said that, I think there are a number of things that prevent us many times from um, from making good investment decisions. Though one of the most common ones, and this is, you know, again, not just with individuals, but I've seen it plenty with institutional investors, people who have been doing this for decades and decades, um, is confirmation bias. And what confirmation bias is, if you're not familiar, is um, you know, to simplify it, you decide that you are bullish on a certain market. I think, you know, this stock, Netflix is going to go higher. And then what you do is as you start gathering evidence to support that bias uh, or support that, support that uh, opinion, that bullish thesis, you uh, overplay, you, you, you put greater value on things that support your thesis and you minimize the importance of things that disagree. And, and, again, to put it another way, you decide you're bullish on something, and then you just start looking for confirmation. You start looking for reasons why you can confirm your pre-existing bias. Now, as you can probably guess the way I'm describing it, that's not the way you want to do it, right? You want to start with a, um, you know, more of a free, more of an emotionless view of what's happening around you and gather all the data – then make a decision based on the available data then compare it to your positioning and decide should I be bullish or bearish based on the evidence that I've just gathered. So you know again working with my clients we try to disconnect that process of your current positioning and your analysis of the data and make sure that they're independent from one another then you start to look back and see if they're uh, see if they're in line or not. So the first one is is certainly confirmation bias. The second thing I would say would be uh, endowment bias or the endowment effect and what that sort of means if any of you that have children, um, you know, uh, would you ever sell one of your children or get rid of them? Probably not, because they're so meaningful to you. They're so important. We can't think of our stocks, our positions, as our, 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 our holdings as our children, right, as our babies that we could never get rid of. These are, um, you know, uh, a portfolio manager mentor of mine always said, we're never owning stocks. We're actually renting them. And you need to think of it that way. So what happens is when you think of your when you take too much ownership mentally of your current positions, it's very difficult for you to let go of them. And what happens is, let's say you're owning a basket of stocks and a couple of them really start to uh, struggle performance wise. It's very difficult. What we do is we justify owning them because that's. Home Depot, that's our baby, that's the stock that has always worked for us, we have so many good experiences with this, it's been such a winner for me, but then as a result, you're ignoring clear evidence um, that you should be, uh, that you should be uh, getting rid of it. And so a lot of times the endowment effect is sort of what I would say the, um, the second most uh, common one, which is basically uh, to um, you know, put too much value on your current holdings and forget to pay attention to evidence that might be contrary to that. And then the third one, very briefly, I would say is overconfidence. And uh, going back to, Jeremy, your question on on, uh, flying and and our discussion, uh, both of us, on on navigating an airplane and, and situational awareness, pilots are very frequently known to be overconfident. Um, there's a thing called get thereitis, which they talk about with pilots, where you're so desperate to get there and you feel like you can just make the plane do whatever you want that you fly into bad conditions, you fly into the clouds or into poor weather, and as a result, you're you know you're you're way too confident in your and your your plane's ability to navigate um, you know a situation that clearly should not be should not be entered. And as investors, we are way too often overconfident. When I've when I've been coaching analysts. I found a lot of times, uh, you know, we we program analysts to be overconfident, um, whether on purpose or not. So we, we teach analysts to be decisive and to pound the table and have strong opinions and to back those up with good evidence. But as a result, when things start to go against you, you become way too confident in your ability to almost will the markets to do or will a stock to do what you want it to do. So... There's a humility to investing, and anyone who's been investing for a period of time knows that um, you know that there are times when position market will go completely against your positions, and you have to be mentally and emotionally prepared for that, and and again, not make an emotional decision uh, on the other side of it. So, uh, a good investor, a good analyst, is not overconfident; they're confident, right? They are aware of their abilities. They're also aware of their um, you know their inconsistencies, or maybe their um, Uh, you know, where they might not be perfect and and accept that imperfection and embrace it. So we tend to uh, have confirmation bias, endowment bias, and overconfidence. And again, my goal with with clients really is to try to minimize those three and their their dangerous impact on our decisions.
2: Thank you. You're talking to a mother who... is yelling to the kids for not dressing warm in the freezing weather this morning. So talking about endowment effect of justifying your love. Yeah,
3: that's right, that's
2: right. I never understood why schools have uh, pajama days in below freezing day. I honestly gonna do a research on the history of uh, pajama days in America.
3: (laughs) Right? Why, yeah, did you guys
2: have pajama day? (laughs) Yeah,
3: we absolutely do. And, uh, And it's funny, it happens all during the year And at times when I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, in the Midwest, and it's been absolutely frigid. So um, I totally hear you. I
2: know. So uh, endowment effect is definitely, uh, you know, one thing I I, I try to remind myself every day. Um, (laughs) But uh, I, I do want to follow up. So in terms of technical analysis, what are you seeing now?
3: Sure. So it, it's a fascinating market, and I tend to think of it on, on three time frames. I mentioned earlier sort of the two time frames, which is the short-term, the tactical, a couple days to a couple weeks, the intermediate term or the, uh, you know, what I would call the cyclical trend, which is looking out, you know, six to 12 months. And then there's also the longer-term trend, uh, longer term trend, more of the secular trend, uh, the, which is, you know, really thinking about the business cycle and, you know, multi-year, uh, movements and rotation when, when sectors and, and themes come in and out of favor. And sort of my base case that I've been uh, thinking about is that I think we're in a secular bull market, and I, I think it's, it would be difficult to deny that fact here, um, just with you know the 2009 low. And then I would argue 2013 is when we really confirmed that that secular bull market was in place when we broke to new highs on the, on the S&P 500. Um, so I, I still think that that's in place. That medium term is what's uh, is what's super challenging, which is that cyclical time frame. And, and my base case has been a cyclical bear market. Uh, and if you think about the the U.S. market going into the peak in January of 2018, you know, sold off very quickly into the February low, but then came back and even made a higher high in October. Then we made a lower low going into the to the end of the uh, uh, Christmas Eve low, the end of December of, of 2018. Then we had this very unusual V bottom that pushed uh, the U.S. markets back up to, uh, in in, S&P terms, 2,800 to 2,820, which as a technical analyst has been a significant resistance level, which is a level above which we seem to be unable to go. We hit that level a number of times in October through December of of last year. And so once we got back to that level, um, sort of suggested that was a a short-term top. So in my opinion, I think we've reached up to – a level of resistance that is formidable um you saw breadth which is just the characteristics of the market what's the market participation how many stocks are really participating in the uptrend the breadth measures became overly bullish um you know meaning just so many stocks had rallied so quickly and so unusually quick relative to how they normally uh how they normally trade that all sort of lined up suggesting that that 2800 to 2820 level is is a is a good resistance level so in my opinion i think we're seeing the beginning this week you know and on, on friday thursday friday this week we've sold off very quickly um the beginning of what what could be a, a further downside uh, and, and in my opinion you know again based on the on the charts you could see support around 2,600 to 2,650. That's a 6 you know, to 7% drop from uh, from earlier highs, which isn't that bad, but will probably feel pretty bad after this, uh, after this rally that we've had out of, the, out of the December lows. And then that tactical time frame, that very short-term one is what's been most interesting. That's where we've seen a lot of rotation. And just in the last couple of days, China, which is one of the better long-term charts that I've seen, has actually you know, sold off incredibly quick. Um, and, and, and come down very uh, very abruptly um, and so I think on that tactical time frame I think we see weakness here and I'm, I'm, I'm fairly defensively minded uh, and I think that cyclical time frame is going to go a little further the question is going to be how far do we sell off and what sort of characteristics do we see there and so you know an analysis of price looking at price levels on the S&P 500 is usually the starting point to the analysis you then look a little more second level in terms of breadth and sector rotation I think what different sectors industrials, technology, financial how they perform during a sort of correction, I think, will be most telling about what we might want to expect next after that.
2: Uh, David, thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, where can the listener find out more about your work, uh, including your blog?
3: Yeah, thanks so much, and again, such a pleasure to, to join you guys. Really enjoyed the conversation. I, I, I'm sure, hope we'll, we will keep in touch. Uh, my blog is called Market Misbehavior. And uh and you can you can find it at marketmisbehavior dot com where I like to write about that relationship between behavioral psychology and the financial markets, I think there's so much more research and and insights that could be had from that. And I think we're just in the beginnings of that becoming much more of a a focus in academia. Very exciting. And I also write a blog over at StockCharts.com, which is called The Mindful Investor, where I try to apply lessons from mindfulness, meditation, those sorts of things, the discipline and the awareness of the now, and apply that for investors. So that's at uh, StockCharts.com.
2: Thank you. Thanks to also my producer, Patty Hall, and my sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Thank you and have a great day.
1: Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.